Welcome to the Start a Brewery podcast, where we discuss all things relating to startups, open and growing breweries, from concept to execution. We are pleased to partner with All About Beer to bring you this podcast. You're joining us today for episode 007, Shaken, Not Stirred. I'm Laura Lodge here with Candace Moon, and we're excited to welcome you to our ongoing podcast journey. Craft Beer knows firsthand that the best ingredient is love. Arrived Point of Sale combines industry expertise, essential taproom tools, and a whole lot of love to make running your brewery easier. Scale faster with Arrive's mobile all-in-one system that offers flight tools, digital card on file, and award-winning customer support. See profit-building tools in action at arrive.com forward slash start a brewery. That's A-R-R-Y-V-E-D dot com forward slash start a brewery. Finally, a lovable point of sale arrived. We come to today's episode on the heels of discussing mission statements and values in episode 005 and developing your brand in episode 006. We've heard from four brewery owners about their original dream, the warning signs that can signal problems ahead, and the foundational essentials that you need to have in place in order to move ahead with creating a compelling business plan. Today, we pause in our progress of working our way through the different elements of creating your business plan to talk with three brewing industry entrepreneurs who have created their own. It's empowering to know that you're not alone on this journey to live your dream, and it's always helpful to hear from others about their inspiration, challenges, innovations, and pivots when something just didn't work as planned. Business plans are just that, plans. When something works, you might grow it and elaborate on it. Or you might use a similar strategy to start something new in parallel, or you might decide to create something different that is a better fit with who you are and what you want for your life going forward. Let's hear from our guests about their business development, what it was like to create these breweries, how important plans were to creating a successful business from their original dream, and how their previous experiences inspired them to create new or parallel businesses. Good morning. Or afternoon, depending on where you are. Um, our guests today are Mark Youngquist with Dolores River Brewery. Good morning, Mark. Uh, Sam, and I practice this, Calazoni. Sorry, I stumbled a bit. Uh, Dogfish Headcraft Brewery and Boston Bear Company. Uh, and Mitch Steele, New Realm Brewing Company. I'm going to do the bios, so... Have patience with me. There's a lot of information here that I think is really important to know what uh, these gentlemen have all done. So Mark Youngquist with Dolores River Brewery. Mark began home brewing in 1989 in his mom's kitchen, destroying it in the process. He began his professional brewing career in 1987 with Columbia River Brewery, also known as Bridgeport in Portland, Oregon, in the very first years of the Northwest craft brewing movement. In 1990, he moved back to Colorado and founded the Walnut Brewery in Boulder, bought the Boulder Brewery out of near bankruptcy, and opened the Rock Bottom Brewery as the second brew pub in Denver. Subsequently, Mark oversaw the brewing site of Rock Bottom as the company grew to operate over 35 brewery restaurants around the country. Mark left, Mark left Rock Bottom in 2001 and moved to a small town in southwest Colorado, opening the Dolores River Brewery in 2002, a brew pub, beer garden, and music venue that is alive and thriving today. He still makes the beer and shepherds a small band of loyal pirates through the adventurous life that a small town living in a devastatingly beautiful place. 
He is a mentor in the Brewers Association's mentorship program, a committee member of the Colorado Brewers Guild, and a trustee on the Dolores Town Board. Okay, next, Mitch Steele, brewmaster and co-founder, New Realm Brewing of Atlanta, Virginia Beach, and Charleston, South Carolina. Mitch is the brewmaster and co-founder of New Realm Brewing Company in Atlanta, Georgia. He has been brewing beer professionally for over 34 years, studying brewing science at the University of California, Davis, and home brewing prior to becoming a professional brewer in 1988. Since 1988, Mitch has managed brewing operations and innovation with four different breweries, including 14 years with Anheuser-Busch, followed up by 10 years at Stone Brewing in San Diego County, where he managed all brewing operations as Stone Brewing grew from a 50,000 barrel operation to one of the top 10 largest craft brewers in the country, operating four separate breweries in two countries. In 2012, Mitch authored the Brewers Publications book, IPA, Brewing Techniques, Recipes, and Evolution of India Pale Ale. And in 2014, the Brewers Association awarded Mitch with the prestigious Russell Scherer Award for Innovation in Craft Brewing. In addition to his duties at New Realm Brewing Company, Mitch currently chairs the Brewers Association Supply Chain Subcommittee, was just elected to the Brewers Association Board of Directors, and sits on the Board of Directors for the Georgia Craft Brewers Guild. Not busy at all. And last but not least, uh, Sam Calagione. Calagione. God, one day I'm going to get that. Uh, Brewer founder, Dogfish Head, and Boston Beer Company. Um, Sam has been focused on brewing beers with culinary ingredients since 1995, when Dogfish Head first opened as the smallest craft brewery in America. Today, Dogfish has grown into a 400-plus person company and is one of the most recognized brewers, breweries in the country. Dogfish Head is based in Delaware with Dogfish Head Brewings and Eats, an off-centered brew pub and distillery. Chesapeake and Maine, a geographically enamored seafood restaurant with a James Beard-nominated cocktail program. Dogfish Inn, a harborfront beverage-themed motel. And Dogfish Head Craft Brewery, a production brewery and distillery featuring a tasting room and kitchen. Dogfish currently sells beers, spirits, and canned cocktails around the U.S., in July 2019, Dogfish Head proudly merged with the Boston Beer Company. Sam's innovative style and collaborative spirit has earned him a reputation as one of the industry's most adventurous entrepreneurs and brewers. Sam has authored four books and was named the James Beard Foundation's Outstanding Wine, Spirits, or Beer Professional in 2017. Sam Mariah and their family reside in coastal Delaware. Whew. Okay. I want to stop talking for a while and hear from you guys. <laughs> so <laughs> let's just dive right in. So on the podcast, we've been talking a lot about business plans, how to get started and putting those together. So I'm curious um, whether or not, because I know uh, you guys started uh, quite a while ago and have had a few different businesses in the in the last years. Did you have a business plan? And if you didn't have one with your first business at any point in time, did you start working on a business plan for one of the later ones? So let's start with Mark. Thank you, Candice. That's uh, an interesting question to think back like so many years ago, 33 years ago now would be um, about the time we opened the Walnut Brewery. And I have to say that the short answer is no, I didn't have a business plan. Um, I had three years of brewing experience with Bridgeport, 
Um, we were a distributing brewery that also had a small uh, pub that was kind of in its infancy. And we were looking forward to uh, kind of expanding that. But I realized um, at making $3.35 an hour that I, you know, I probably wasn't going to escalate very quickly back then to uh, a position of real creativity or financial stability. And um, I burned the boats, so as to say. I left Portland, a uh, town I loved at the time, and Bridgeport um, under the tutelage of Carl Okert. And... Um, Moved back to Colorado knowing in my heart that uh, the brew pub movement was going to take off. And I knew Denver really well. Um, the Wine Coop Brewery had just opened, and I initially uh, approached um, John Hickenlooper and Russ Shearer about collaborating on a brewery in Boulder, um, thinking that, okay, they've got their first one open. I've got a lot of ideas since I'd been up in the Northwest. There were a lot of differences I saw and a lot of great um, ways to do things that uh, maybe we could capitalize in the Boulder market. So I had a lot of ideas. I'd done a lot of research. Um, I'd researched brewery layout um, and design, mechanics, et cetera, et cetera. I'd, I'd gone to uh, UC Davis and done their short course uh, with Michael Lewis. And uh, I'd gotten just about all the education I could short of a master brewer's degree before I went out there. Um, I did some feasibility studies and things like that. But going into the Walnut, um, it was just happenstance that I happened to meet a restaurant tour who uh, had all the experience I was lacking um, and the financial resources I was always also lacking. So uh, the partnership that we created together. Um, was really our, our, I guess you'd say our, uh, our skills and our interests dovetailed very nicely. He knew exactly what to do in the restaurant side of things. No idea how a brewery would work. Um, and that was really the only forte I had to offer. But together we uh, were able to create the, the Walnut Brewery and it, um, it went from there. And I think we're going to get to uh, later in the in the talk a little bit more about would you have a business plan going forward or did you in your later iterations? So I'll leave that topic to later. But the short the short answer, I guess, was no, I didn't really have one. I was young and brash and a little bit stupid. OK, a lot stupid, probably. But I had so much passion that uh, it would it overrode a lot of the obstacles that uh, might have been in my way. I had burned the boats back in Portland. So failure was not an option, and I really didn't want to be a plumber. Long and short. Excellent. Got it. Mitch, same question. Yeah, I, you know, I, I spent most of my career working for companies that were already pretty well established. So, um, you know, I can't really speak to their business plans, but um, I, I can relate a couple of, of things about what I've done. I think... Uh, when I first started in this business, it was in 1988, and I was at a little small brew pub in uh, the Monterey Bay area of, of California. And the owner at, who was starting the brewery, he, he was already pretty well underway, and he had a business plan. It was about two pages long. Um, you know, it wasn't it wasn't a fully fleshed out business plan, but it was you know a concept and what he wanted to do and. Um, and when he brought me on board, it helped me kind of figure out what we were going to do in the brewery and, and what kind of beers we were going to make. Um, 
and unfortunately that brewery didn't survive. He had, he had a lot of great ideas, but um, just getting the financing and getting them done proved to be uh, a little bit more than he could do. Um, and, but, you know, and then from there, I went to Anheuser-Busch and, you know, if they have a business plan. I'd never saw it. And, and then Stone, you know, Stone was already 10 years into, into their uh, life when, when I joined. So they were already pretty well established. Um, so, you know, getting to New Realm. Um, so my co-founder, Terry Falcone, had been working on this project for several years before he approached me about joining him. So he had a business plan and he he comes from a really strong business background. His family owned a beer distributor in Pennsylvania. He spent decades with Anheuser-Busch on the sales and uh, planning side. So he had a business plan that was that was huge. Um, it was, you know, it was a lot, it took a long time for me to read through it and understand it. Um, but, you know, it laid out the concept of what he wanted to do. It laid out how they were going to be financed um, and, you know, what our growth uh, projections were for, you know, it had a five-year plan in it, which I thought was pretty impressive. Um, you know, the only thing he didn't have in there was was the QA program. So I, I got it and I read that and got that fixed right away. But, uh, you know, we had a budget for the first build out and we had a concept for what we wanted to do. To do in the southeast um yeah and if if and we are going to talk about how we've had to flex from that a little bit i i expect so you know i can i can be like mark and save that for the next round but uh yeah we've definitely had to change things as we've gone and, you know and that's important awesome sam same question to you uh from the beginning when you guys started out yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, I graduated from college in 92, was living in New York City, was working as at a bar, taking classes to, to uh, uh, at Columbia to hopefully become a writer, professor of English, and worked at a beer bar, like a first generation early 90s beer bar, fell in love with great beer, got to taste diverse, super diverse beers really for the first time. Um, and decided that would be my, my passion. I want to be a storyteller. I thought, writing fiction or screen screenwriting or poetry would be the the medium but I thought maybe I can convey my passion for creative storytelling towards recipes and sort of marketing uh, events and stuff like that so I did go to the uh, uh, public library in New York City and I know the internet now I know the internet exists existed but I didn't then so I was doing like Lexus Nexus searches for how do you write a business plan what are the different components of it and researching sort of uh, early sort of local for similar movements to beer. So I was researching the Bridgeports, the Sierras, the, uh, 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 you know, Sam Adams, the brands I knew about, but then I was also doing research because I knew we wanted to do something really culinary oriented to stand out from sort of the first generation craft brewery. So I was also researching like Alice Waters, and James Beard, and uh, the, the local for coffee movement, baking movements that were kind of going off in that moment as well. And so I did write a business plan in part out of necessity because I did need to raise money to open Dogfish. I raised $220,000 to open Dogfish, one hundred and ten dollars as personal loans to me from my family, my friends, my orthodontist, the guy I built stone walls for the summer job, put in, I think, 25. Uh, and then with that 110, my dad collateralized a piece of commercial real estate, his office. He was a tooth doctor. And I was able to go to a bank to get the other 110, but I wouldn't have been able to do that as a 24 year old waiter 
uh, as an English major college if I didn't have that business plan that, uh, you know, kind of, uh, as both Mark and Mitch said, at least showing some pro forma forecast, how we're going to differentiate ourselves. And it was also really unique in that moment because we would be the first brewery opening in the state of Delaware since prohibition. So the whole concept of local brewing in this neck of the woods, unlike the Northwest or San Diego or Colorado, it was a really foreign idea. Um, so getting the, uh, you know, the attention of the bankers and even the regulators, it was really helpful to have that business plan. And I'd also just end by saying, even if you're in, a, in a, an extremely lucky position where you don't need outside money to, start your brewing company, I think it's still a really, you know, uh, fruitful exercise to do a full-fledged business plan, even if initially it's the audience is one and you're just kind of honing and condensing your story, but most importantly as the roadmap for your own coworkers. So as you're opening your doors, you can't be in every room of the building at every moment, and eventually you may aspire like the folks on this call to have more than one building and then you certainly need a a, a roadmap written down uh somewhere and so for us you know from the beginning it was uh you know the first page of the business plan said we'll be the first commercial brewery in america committed to brewing the majority of our beers outside the rhine heights boat uh using culinary ingredients and that was true when we were literally the smallest commercial brewery in america and it's still true today we look at the number of tanks at our brewery the majority are filled with in you know recipes that have that so that that business plan has really been you know the uh critical you know uh the heart of our company even as we've evolved in all these different uh ways uh for the for the 27 for the 27 years awesome mark i'm going to jump back to you because you you kind of you didn't mention the, the the last couple of breweries so i'm wondering did you have business plans for either of those well, uh, the last couple of breweries probably being the rock bottom, which was basically, you know, a, an iteration of Walnut. Walnut was the prototype of the rock bottom breweries. Um, when we got into Boulder Brewery, Boulder Beer uh, basically was the, the financial arm of our partnership was very interested in um, what was looking to be the the new growth of the you know, the industry was uh, in its very fledgling state. Of course, Boulder Beer had been around for 20 years before then, so um, it was nothing new. I think they started in like 1977 or something like that. Um, so maybe not 20 years, but they were really struggling, and it was basically a fire sale. Uh, and the success of our first place, the Walnut, uh, inspired uh, my other partners to really want to get into packaging and production, um, which was something I was not all that excited about. Uh, when in a little bit, uh, in a little bit of trepidation, if you'd ever been to the Boulder Brewery, um, it is a fifty-barrel homebrew system, and uh, in terms of mechanically, it, it had fifteen years of deferred maintenance. So it was a, a bit of a a bit of a Herculean project to undertake trying to resurrect that thing, and so that was that was very that was very interesting. It, it did require a little bit of a change in the business plan, and in especially in the model. Um, at the time, they were shipping beer all over the country, um, and I say shipping beer because they were shipping it to places, but they weren't selling it there. Um, we started getting calls from storage warehouses and. Uh, in other places like that saying, well, you know, you haven't paid your rent in six months. What do you want us to do with all this beer? You better 
which came as a complete surprise. Um, so we realized that a lot of our distributors were not actually ordering beer. Um, we were just shipping it to places to make to make it look like we were busy, so to speak. Um, so when we took over, we we really had to recreate our own um, business plan around beginning again, and that began with the local Colorado market um, and reestablishing our you know our draft versus package um, balance and uh, and finding our place, um, especially amongst the new brewers uh, in the area. So there weren't a lot of packaging brewers brewers back there in, in 1990. Um, and most people were packaging by hand. I think New Belgian was probably packaging by hand. Odell was not packaging at all. Um, so that it was, there was opportunity and there was, uh, a lot of damage control because, uh, because the, the Boulder beer label had not fared well in terms of, uh, uh, its value out in the market. Now going into the rock bottom, then, um, we went down to the Denver was a, a boom and bust town, and it was in the middle or the end of a bust cycle after um, probably the oil, the big oil crisis in the late 70s. So uh, the downtown Denver area was pretty much a ghost town. And with the success of the Walnut, um, finding an anchor in the downtown <sighs> urban area uh, looked like a really good idea. We found a place at the bottom of Prudential Plaza, which was, you know, get a piece of the rock. And uh, that became the 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 kind of the joke of the name get a piece of the rock rock bottom you've hit rock bottom um it was tongue in cheek until until we opened and the menu said rock bottom <laughs> um but the the business plan from there went uh and expanded so i might say you know a business plan is not a static thing and i i know you guys you know as your businesses have grown and changed um, that you realize your business plan is only so good so long. It's got an expiration date, or at least it's got um, a desire and a need to be um, modified, to be to evolve as you evolve, as your business evolves. And so, yes, there was a modification for rock bottom, uh, especially when we started going to other markets around the country. Uh, and my last project, uh, it was, I, I think, um, it was a little bit more like Sam said, it was an exercise for one, for me, it was, there was a, a lot of research in terms of like the area I wanted to open my brewery in what, and what I wanted to create around that. So a piece of that was, uh, knowing your market, right. And when that was something that rock bottom taught me is, um, every market is different and you can't make assumptions about the, the type of people you're going to be interacting with the type of environments that people uh are used to inhabiting and um and what are the needs of the community you're serving so it was a very different um perspective for me to move to a small town and kind of or an area that's very rural and understand exactly what the needs of the community were how i might be able to serve them and so that was a, a deep exploration of course there were also the pieces of uh the finance like uh just figuring out exactly what was feasible uh, financially it was a, a great exercise and exploration for me to understand uh, further how to flesh out my ideas about how to serve the community I'd, I'd chosen. We interrupt your regular programming with a word from Craft Beer's most trusted point of sale, Arrived. Arrived combines industry expertise and essential taproom tools 
to make brewery operations easier and profits bigger. In fact, arrived customers who use QR code ordering see an increase in tab size by almost 37%. Learn how they do it at arrived.com forward slash start a brewery. That's A-R-R-Y-V-E-D dot com forward slash start a brewery. One of the um, prior uh, podcasts we did was uh, about mission statements. Um, and basically, um, the idea of having your personal values uh, really help play into developing your brand and your company culture. Um, how did that um, how did that work for you? If, if if at all, like was that a was that a factor for you? You looking at me again? I am sorry, I am. I keep forgetting like we can't see each other. <laughs> yeah, and and thank you for that. Um, you know, I've I've struggled with a mission statement, trying to make one or create a mission statement that doesn't sound like the intro to Star Trek. You know, boldly go where no. Um, and so I I after beating my head against the wall uh, uh, on that for several years, I, I dropped it entirely in favor of what I call my North Star. And that is something that I can align to within myself, within my business decisions, within my um, my everyday life. It's my compass, as it were. I call it the North Star because it's easy for me to uh, question my own decision-making process or others and just say, well, does that align? Does that align? Does that come into uh, into alignment with you know what we're what we're all about here? It's also easy to translate. Um, mine's three words long. Um, it allows other people to find themselves in it too, because it can mean a little something different for everyone. But it really is that that focus point out on the horizon or above the horizon that you can all continue to move toward and align to. So mine is heal the planet. And that is that is my North Star. That is to what I align all my decisions around when I wake up in the morning and go to work in the morning, um, how we continue to create our business day to day. Everything revolves around that heal the planet. Well, can this decision align to heal the planet? In what way does it align to heal the planet? So that's uh, a way that I brought um, the mission statement to a place that I can understand it, that it's visceral and it lands with, uh, within me, within my staff. And I think it's, uh, easy to communicate to, uh, to my community as well. Excellent. Uh, Mitch, same question when you were, uh, you know, working with, um, and I'm sorry, I forgot his name, your co-founder for New Realm. Yeah, we, we had a mission statement and then, you know, I'll, I'll start with, with stone because I don't know if stone, my first few years there ever had an official mission statement because Greg really wasn't into all that business structure type stuff. Um, but we had a phrase and, and the phrase was be amazing. And I love that because it could encompass everybody in the company and you could interpret it any way that worked for you and what your job tasks were. And it, it was kind of the guiding principle for everything that we did at Stone. And, you know, as we grew and we added some more people on the executive level, um, you know, we, we went through the process of creating a mission statement and a vision statement. Um, 
and I thought it was really valuable because especially, you know, and I think Mark mentioned this, it, as you get bigger, it gets harder to, to communicate where your mindset is and what you think is important for the company to everybody that's working there. Um, so when we started New Realm, one of the first things that we did as an executive team was to create a mission statement. And our mission statement is is kind of wordy, um, you know, it's long, but you know, the bottom line is it's it's all about creating great experiences for our guests and our customers, and um, you know, and then everything else just kind of flows from that. And I think that's an effective one. And this is you know, this is something we share in team meetings all the time. And in addition to the mission statement, we uh, we created a, a vision statement and we created a list of core values which is really, really important for us as a company, you know, how, how we expect people to treat each other, how we expect people to bring bad news or good news to the team, um, you know, how we treat our customers, uh, how we expect our customers to treat us. Um, you know, all that stuff is really, really important. And it's, it's become kind of the mantra of New Realm. And, you know, when we have town hall meetings, we usually pick one of our core values and dive into it a bit. And talk about how people are exhibiting that value in their workday, and uh, you know, it's it's a lot of work to put those things together. We didn't agree on it a lot, um, you know, so it took several iterations until we landed on where we landed. But I think, from a company standpoint, it's been really valuable to have those documents and have them accessible to everybody that works for us. Awesome, Sam. Same question. Yeah, we didn't in the business plan have what would be called a traditional uh, um, mission statement. But soon after we started calling a condensed version of that statement, our mission statement. And so what was, it's you know, the second page of the business plan, the first said what we would do as a brewery and how we differentiate ourselves. But the second was this three sentence Emerson quote, and it's who so would be a man must be a nonconformist. He who would gather. Immortal palms must not be hindered by the name goodness, but must explore for be goodness for themselves, for nothing is sacred but the integrity of your own mind. And obviously that doesn't fit on a six pack. So we condense that to off-centered ales for off-centered people, basically saying the same thing of we didn't intend to follow the status quo. And hopefully if we did exciting stuff or amazing stuff to use Mitch's world, people would join choose to join us on this journey that would be outside the status quo. And much like Mark's uh, very m much more eloquent, concise, heal the planet, that be that shorter version of our mission statement is really the filter that we make all decisions through. And in fact, it even led us to evolve the mission statement. We opened intentionally our brewery, first brewery in 95 inside a restaurant because we we're going to use all these culinary ingredients. And we want an open restaurant with no freezer all fresh food in a refrigerator or on shelves that we would take in one direction on plates or in another in five gallon buckets or saucepans towards our little half barrel brewery. So the culinary message and beer to be paired with uh, food and, and, you know, beers that were made with culinary ingredients would be visually apparent to our, our customers. But right away we started saying, well, we're not just about off-centered ales, we're about off-centered food. So we took that word goodness from the Emerson quote and we evolved our mission statement to be off-centered goodness for off-centered people. And then as leaders, anytime we just had a conversation about, should we do something new, a beer themed hotel, a collaboration with you know Woolworth 
you know, Woolrich clothing, we would use that goodness as a blank and we'd say off-centered, you know, rum for off-centered people. Does that work? Uh, you know, off-centered seafood company for off-centered people. And how would we make it jibe with the front and back of the statement? So it's really been an important like filter for us, that mission statement and, and still is as important today as, as, uh, as it's been, uh, you know, when, when we opened up. How did your um, your personal values play into your the the brand of the company? Are you going to market me? Or? Sorry, <laughs> Sam. I was following up uh, the mission statement question. Yeah, and as Mitch said, we did codify values eventually, but it was kind of baby steps. It was the Emerson quote when we opened, and then. We said, oh, we, let's condense this. Oh, that condensed thing happens to be kind of like what people in the business world call a mission statement. Now that's our mission statement. And then soon after, once it was a little bit of a bigger group, you know, we we started to create the values that we um, that we check in on, much like Mitch at, at monthly meetings. And, and uh, you know, they're writ large on the wall in, in different places at all of our locations, as is that Emerson quote. Um, so they're they're absolutely critical, you know. Per, personally, to me, you know, one of them was I was pretty re rebellious growing up and got kicked out of high school. I never actually got a high school a diploma, but some of the colleges uh, still chose to accept me. So I got to go to college without a high school diploma. That's a small group of people, I think, in America, not not exactly Mensa. Uh, but uh, so that rebellion thing was important to me as I wanted to do this like rebellious little brewery, but I also didn't want to be like the man. I'm going to open my own company, but I don't want to be the boss and the man. So right from the beginning in the, in the business plan, we've never once referred to anyone that works at Dogfish as my employee or even employees. It's always comes from this place of co co-workers and we're all co-workers and we all, you know, work for brand Dogfish and really if we're doing it well, then brand Dogfish works uh, for us. So that's kind of carried through in a lot, all, all our decision-making and kind of, it's a, just sort of our wording of sort of the golden rule, and, you know, the karma that comes with, if you're really respectful to everyone you, you're, you're engaging with from coworkers to customers, to suppliers that, that uh, karma comes back to us. So I think that that's probably our most uh, guiding, uh, you know, evergreen uh, value. Great. Okay, so back to the 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 original plan. Um, curious to find out what you discovered in terms of how did how did reality change uh, your business plan, or did your business you know, or did the business plan change the reality? But I'm pretty sure it's the other one. So we'll start with Mark again. Business plan changing the reality. Um, I think the most important thing uh, I realized throughout my experience with rock bottom building breweries all over the country. And I even built one in St. Croix um, was know where you are to know where you're going. Uh, one of the things that I, one of the lessons we learned when I opened a brewery in Houston, Texas was that at that time, people in Houston didn't drink draft beer. And, uh, that was quite a shock uh, coming from Colorado where draft beer was king. Um, so we ended up packaging most of our, not most, but a lot of our beer in long neck bottles at the brew pub to sell back over the bar in front of the taps. 
uh, people were just so used to drinking long neck bottles. So that was like a little bit of an eye opener back when Pierre Sellis was opening Sellis uh, down in Texas too. And I think he got a few of the same lessons. Um, when I moved to the small town, I realized uh, things were going to be very different uh, from the big kind of urban centers that I'd been brewing, building breweries before. And um, I really took a long glance around, uh, took a number of years to uh, understand the community, to understand what maybe it was lacking, something that I could provide. Uh, and what I felt it could really use in terms of uh, a gathering spot, creating a stronger community. Um, and so there were pieces there that uh, that I found that I wouldn't I wouldn't have discovered had I just marched into some place and decided, I'm going to open a brewery. this is this is what it's going to look like. I hope everybody loves my concept, um, which we did over and over again at Rock Bottom, many times to our peril, um, sometimes to our our are battering and bruising. Um, but it, it, it really is, uh, the business plan is, as Laura said earlier, is just a plan. You know, it's an idea. You're trying to focus uh, your passions and your ideas and your financial viability or whatever it is into a place where you think you can open the doors and then you get an education, right? So everything continues to evolve. It's really important. I think um, Sam and you know Mitch both said how how having that core and foundation uh, built upon your values really is uh, a guide to where you're going to go next. That being said, your business plan kind of like flies right out the window at that point. Some pieces of it may linger about and flit around your area for a while. You may uh, domesticate some of those ideas, as it were. Um, but a lot of them will will go up and smoke the minute you open the doors. And so it's up to you to pivot and understand how you can um, how can you, how you can move forward. And so, you know, coming from a very small operation into a burgeoningly growing one, uh, which sounds like an experience we all share, um, you realize again that, you know, what what you had in your original business plan needs to evolve. It's like a child. It needs to grow. And there'll be stages, some of them painful, if you've ever had uh, teenagers, um, you'll understand. Awesome. Mitch, what was your experience with uh, with New Realm business plan versus reality? Yeah, we had to do a lot of pivoting. Um, it was it was really a pretty interesting process. It, at times, it was a bit disheartening. Um just a couple of examples. Uh, when we opened up, I, I was brewing beers like we had brewed at Stone. And I expected everybody to embrace that in Atlanta. And they didn't. You know, they didn't like 70 IBU beers. And and the one overriding complaint we got uh, from our customers the first month or two that we were open was that our beers were too bitter. So, you know, we had to shift gears a little bit. And, and you know, now that we have three locations, we realized that the uh, our customers or our, our guests in our tap rooms in each of the three locations want different things. And, and so having that, you know, flexibility on the beers that we're brewing and being able to pull off of a beer that's not working very quickly. And, you know, we talk about flexibility a lot at New Realm because things change quickly. Um, and uh, so, yeah, we had to change our beer lineup. 
uh, early on. I remember we weren't going to have TVs in our in our tap room in Atlanta. That was a big deal for us. And then we kind of caved a little bit and and put some drop down screens in our main tap room. And we have three different levels in, in New Realm in Atlanta. So we had the TV screens in the main level. And our very first day that we opened to the public was a national championship game, uh, college football. And so we had, the place was just packed. We ran out of beer and, and people were complaining because they were up on our rooftop bar, which has a, had a panoramic view of downtown Atlanta. And we thought that was just awesome. We don't need TVs up here. And they were just killing us because we didn't have televisions. And, you know, we had, we learned, you know, that people in Atlanta like to watch sports when they go out. And and so now we have televisions on all three levels, and you know we don't we don't have them running constantly. But if there's a sporting event on, then we'll we'll turn them on. Um, you know, our original plan was to build ten thousand barrel capacity breweries in every state in the southeast, and have this kind of um, this model of uh, production slash hub brewery in each state. And after we started Atlanta we realized that we were going to run out of capacity pretty quickly. So I started pushing on the team that, you know, we need a production brewery. And um, we ended up buying the old Green Flash Brewery in Virginia Beach, which is a 50-barrel brew house and, and 100,000 barrels of fermentation capacity. Um, and that our business plan went out the window, right? Um, you know, at this point, I mean, we still want to open locations in every state, but they're not going to be 10,000 barrel a year breweries. They're going to be brew pubs. And, and, you know, and having a production brewery that size that allows us to do most of our production work in Virginia Beach changed how we did everything else. Um, you know, and there, there are a lot of things like that, you know, that, that, uh, you know, I think anybody that's running a business has had to go through. But I think the the beer uh, selection situation in Atlanta was the one that really hit me the hardest because I was like, oh, people are going to get a good West Coast IPA. It's the first time they've ever had a good fresh one. And yeah, they didn't like it at all. <laughs> you know, but at this point, you know, my goal with the beers that we offer in our tap rooms is to have something for everybody because there are still people that come in that want that 70 IBU IPA. There, are, we always have a dark beer on tap. We try to always have a kettle sour on tap because there are groups of people that want them. Uh, but lighter beers are are really our 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 specialty right now, which I'm okay with, you know. But it was uh, it was an adjustment for sure. Awesome, Sam. Same question. So from that that original business plan through numerous additional businesses. Did reality change things a lot, a little? Yeah, I mean, it was always our aspiration to sell beer coast to coast, but scale-wise, uh, you know, our, ours was something like I, I used to, um, you know, crave like a seven-barrel brew house when we opened with a half-barrel brew house. I was like, if I could have a seven-barrel with 14-barrel tank someday and a little mahine and send out pallets of beer to every state, I'd be super psyched at that scale. Uh, and, uh, and we started way smaller than that. We grew bigger than that quickly. I, I learned once we were open, it wasn't so much about the, the calibrating our, our, uh, 
impression of success by barrelage just were we still following sort of our creative muse and that off-centered goodness uh, ideal and shifting the business plan from ale to off-centered goodness gave us you know license to really start experimenting uh, not just from food like we did from the get-go, but we hand-built like a 150-gallon pot still uh, over 20 years ago. And I think we were the first distillery to register with, with the federal government with the word craft in front of it. You know, the craft brewing world shifted from microbrewing to craft brewing first. And we said, you know, hey, we're playing with culinary ingredients in a way that really hasn't been done commercially much in beer. What if we start fucking with, you know, culinary ingredients in a way that hasn't been done with distilled spirits? So we were, you know, able to to open that soon. And same thing with our hotel and a few other things that we've done that we didn't expect to do in the original uh business plan so yeah as as the marketplace has evolved you know we've kind of evolved with it in terms of the the kind of categories of of, uh, businesses that we have under the dogfish umbrella um but they're still kind of under that mission still feel authentic to what we we did when we started you know and kind of right now with with beer not being the growth engine of of alk beverage um it's it's disheartening but an opportunity as well and i I think you know i'm guessing the majority of your uh view these viewers that we're talking with and to today would be opening a small tasting room brewery where you're not as be beholden to the three-tier system as a multi-state distribution brewery is and if that's the, the case i certainly feel like there's always room in any good sized town for another awesome small brewery if you differentiate yourself and make high quality stuff. So just because this year craft beer is not growing, uh, follow your passions and do something unique and exciting and you'll be successful. Um, that said, we're certainly glad that we've diversified as early as we did. And, you know, right now with our spirits based RTD growth, you know, there could be a place where Dogfish five years from now is selling more spirits-based RTD than beer. If you looked at our current growth trajectories, I certainly would have never envisioned that moment when we opened Dogfish Head or even when we opened the distillery in you know, corner of our brewery 20, 20 years ago. So being open to where the market uh, goes is, I think, really important. But I did want to emphasize that we realized that we're talking to folks talk that are considering opening a brewery at a moment when overall craft beer isn't growing. But I do think it's it's really, really challenging if you aspire to to be the next uh, stone or dogfish and go from one little state to 50 uh, in the next three or four years. When you look at what the, the really power broker distributors that are consolidating across the America are focused on right now, that's just unfortunately a harder model than it was when the three of us were coming up in the industry. Um, but that doesn't mean can't hone an awesome, unique brand locally. And then when beer gets back to growth and the three tier distributors are like, oh shit, craft beer is really back. I got to focus on more craft beers in my portfolio. You know, we'll be ready for that moment because the beyond beer segment is a term that's existed for 10 years and beer's something that's been around for 10,000. So it will, it will get its moment in the sun, sun again. Awesome. Okay, so unfortunately, it's about time to to wrap things up. So I'm going to ask you guys for some final words of wisdom. Um, and and one thing I, I'm always curious about is what do you know now that you wish you had known when you were starting? So you don't have to answer that one, but that's always what I'm curious about. 
So Mark, final words of wisdom. Well, it's nice to be curious, isn't it, Candice? Uh, curiosity is something that uh, I try and carry into my life every day. Uh, it's one of my values, curiosity, uh, compassion, connection, and community, I guess would be the four. So I think uh, what I know now that I wish I knew then, um, I know now to trust my gut, I think, in a way that uh, in the past, I had struggled to try and make uh, many people happy um, and to change what I believed in, in a way to accommodate others. Um, and I, I have this feeling now that, um, no, I know, I know in my gut what, uh, what I want to create. And I've been rewarded over the, the course of many years Um by listening carefully to the community around me and uh, giving them uh, giving back in a way that uh, continue to con create connection. Um, that may seem a little esoteric or out there. So I apologize. I wish it was something concrete. Like I wish I knew, I wish I knew not to drink so much when I was young <laughs> or listen to so many loud concerts. I'm just uh bemoaning the fact that I can hardly hear anybody at the bar anymore, but uh, there you go for some concrete uh, curiosity. <laughs> Thank you, Mitch. Yeah, I, you know, I think if you look at it, where I came from, it's it, it stone, you know, we, we made a big emphasis on brewing what we wanted to brew and educating people and if they took to it great and if they didn't they could drink something else and um i wish i had known that that was not going to work in in georgia um you know and and you know that you've got to really listen to what people are are asking for because there's a there are a lot of good breweries in georgia and they're they're all doing something a little bit different but if we're not putting out beers that people want to drink they're just going to stop coming and that didn't work for us. So that was that was one of those things where I think, you know, me coming in with 10 years ingrained of, of that mindset, um, I needed to take a step back from that and, and just kind of refocus and, and start listening a lot more, which, you know, it took me a little while. It was an adjustment. Um, I think the other thing is I wish we had known at the beginning that spirits were going to be what they've become. Um, you know, we've had to retrofit a, a couple of our spots and put stills in. Um, we lost a lot of event business the first year because with Georgia beer laws, if you have a production brewery, you can't serve outside anything and any alcoholic beverage, you know, wine, spirits. So we got a distiller's permit and that turned into a huge move for us. And, and now we have uh, a full-time distiller and we're, we're doing a lot of neat things, uh, you know, but I mean, you know, you're never going to have a crystal ball. Right. And, and so, you know, hindsight's 2020, but it would have been nice if we'd planned for that at the beginning, uh, would have made life a lot easier than, than this transition was, but yeah, in general, I think it's uh, the biggest thing is, is just learning how to listen to your, your customers in your location and understanding what they're looking for when they come to your place. It's, an experience. It's good food. It's a variety of beers. That's usually how it's worked out for us. Awesome. Sam, same question. Yeah, I think part, 
part of it, uh, Candace, was what, what did you learn the hard way that you could that you could do over? So there, there's one. There's only one thing. Like early in 27 years, all the hard lessons I learned. I'm glad I learned. And 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 reacting to the fuck ups made us stronger than if the fuck ups didn't happen. I think. Except there was one like meeting I was in where I put my hand hand down. I'm like, nah, I don't think cans are gonna take off. Let's invest that two hundred thousand dollars in beer infused food like packaged food because we do culinary infused beers so we came up with hop infused pickles hop infused bratwurst and that was a hot mess that's not around anymore that was the money i was going to put into our first real canning line and you know if i could turn back time that is one that i think we would have benefited from not listening to to my gut (laughs) uh and then but there was a great moment that stuck with me uh we, we got to do a collaboration with uh, Miles Davis, his family on the 40th anniversary of the Bitches Brew album. And I got to hang out in uh, uh, Electric Landlady Studio where they did that album with Miles' nephew who played on the album. And I said, well, how, you know, what, what made your uncle so iconic and such a, you know, timeless, unique artist? And he's like, well, he told me once we were doing that session, I, I asked him, he's like, how did you come with who you are, how'd you come out of He said, don't play what's there, play what's not there. And I thought, you know, that was such an aspirational and short statement, much to Mark's point on curiosity of like, okay, well, just because it doesn't exist doesn't mean it shouldn't exist. And kind of, if anything, if it doesn't exist, maybe you should be the person that, that makes it exist has been something that's been really inspiring to the dogfish uh, uh, journey uh, since, since, I, since I heard that. Very cool. Okay, I think we're gonna throw it back to Laura. And uh, thank you all very much. That was fun, thank you. Thanks, Candice. Congrats thanks, to each of you guys. Thanks, Sam. I wanted thank you. to also put in, um, one of the things I'm, I'm taking away from this particular session is that the gathering place changes and the style of gathering changes. Um, and when we went through the pandemic, we gathered in a different way. And now we're learning how to regather again in a different way and i think you know to mark's point to mitch's point and to sam's point we're we're gathering and and changing how we gather but we're still doing that thing and and yes beer will come back around but i think it's interesting to talk about how we gather we gather with tvs we gather outside um you know down in the four corners area it's all about the outside um and then all the different places at the beach sam where you started you know the the whole idea of of why do we gather and I just think it's really cool to think about that. And as a business owner, it's played a huge part in what you've all done. Um, so yes, I'll add my thanks to Candace's and then go ahead and do a little wrap up here. Um, a big thank you to all of our listeners for joining us now and in the future for episode 007, Shaken, Not Stirred, of the Start a Brewery podcast. We invite you to join us for our next episode, 008, continuing forward with your business plan, this time delving into ownership and organizational structure. This will be released on Tuesday, April 11th, before the actual crack of dawn. Craft Beer knows firsthand that the best ingredient is love. Arrived Point of Sale combines industry expertise, essential taproom tools, and a whole lot of love to make running your brewery easier. Scale faster with Arrived's mobile all-in-one system that offers flight tools, digital card on file, and award-winning customer support. See profit building tools in action at arrive.com forward slash start a brewery. That's A-R-R-Y-V-E-D.com forward slash start a brewery. Finally, a lovable point of sale arrived. While you're anticipating the release of our next episode, feel free to visit the Start a Brewery website at startabrewery.com. 
a free resource for those who are looking to open or grow their breweries. Be sure to look through the task lists offered for each stage of the process, plan, act, open, and grow, at the educational resources, and at the offerings from our savvy contributors in our growing library. You can also sign up for an occasional electronic update with new Startup Brewery contributors, content, events, and more great information on the contact page of the website. We also encourage you to explore the All About Beer website at allaboutbeer.com. Perhaps pop in to enjoy one of their excellent podcasts as well. In the meantime, this has been Laura Lodge and Candace Moon wishing you a terrific day and thanking you once again for joining us on our podcast journey to start a brewery. <laughs>